and we're off. I'm I'm looking at uh, Michael Iannini, who did my second podcast for me. We figured it out. It was about a year and a half ago, which just blows my mind. And um, I acquainted him with the with the book project, the idea of humanity at work, and that has to do with humanity at school too. I think because school and work. I mean, for kids, school is a lot of their work, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. so for some of the kids, it is a horrible experience. For other kids, it's a wonderful experience. And I just got to meet Michael's son, who's four, and today's his last day of school. And I think if I heard him correctly, he was disappointed because he really likes school. Yeah, it's his last day of live school. Tomorrow they go online. But where we're in Hong Kong, um, online is mainly done in Cantonese. Uh-huh. And my son necessarily proficient enough nor can you expect a four-year-old that can't understand anything to stay engaged with the teacher online. <laughs> in many ways, we're calling it his last day of school because he won't be participating in those online classes. Um, we'll have to find other novel ways to home homeschool him. <laughs> and uh, what you just said gave me, I think, my my seed that I needed right now. And I, I think our podcast was called Pivot Points. Yeah. Um, and so framing it in terms of your son, maybe, he's, he's just starting his school life, more or less, and school in the short time he's been there has completely changed. Yeah. So how would you like to see, if you could create a vision of what school could become to prepare your, your dear son for a life that we can't, Im- well, we can't imagine it, but we can't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be different than when we grew up. Yeah. So, so how, what would be your like perfect sort of strategic vision? We were talking about strategy before about school in general, in order to get kids prepared for a future that's going to be a lot more predictable than it used to feel like. Well, it's, you know, uh, it's a big question, right? And it's, there's, there's a, a newsletter I subscribe to. Um, it's called the, the Big Questions Institute. And I get it monthly. And I always like some of the provocative quotes and, and some of the original writing that they put into that newsletter. And a, and a quote that stands out for me now is, you know, what's needed in education for a 22nd century? Not to prepare for the 22nd century, but to get us there. And this sort of idea, and this was, this was a quote by Dr. Anthony Jackson at the Asia Society. This whole idea is, you know, when we start thinking about 21st century learning, that's, we're kind of beyond that right now. And we didn't get that right. <laughs> what we really <laughs> need is the 22nd century. Um, and not just to prepare for it, but to understand like that, that path that leads to it because we talked a lot about 21st century learning, but we never really created a, a, a plan or a roadmap to get there. We just kind of let it organically sort of unfold. And the problem with that organic unfolding is that there was no way to really make sense of how we were using technology, how technology could be uh, better utilized in classrooms. Um, 
students were arguably sometimes learning more from Google than they were from their teachers. So they were getting it right before, you know, we as educators did. Um, and this whole idea of like what I would hope for my son going into 22nd century learning is I would like us to begin having a much more constructive dialogue and really planning for what that looks like to, to learn from the chaos that ensued when we moved from live instruction into remote learning because of the pandemic. Um, obviously that really called to attention to just how little we knew about what 21st century learning really was. Um, but now if you wanna connect what schools are doing and what my hopes are for my son as he leaves school and goes into that future workforce, well, we take a look at Generation Z um, and how they are navigating the pandemic. And they're doing pretty wonderful in many senses of the word. The, the job market is really shaped around their preferences and needs because it needs them. Um, I, read a, I read a really good article and I, I used to do some work with Save the Children uh, a few years back where we focused on the, you know, not, not Generation X, but Millennials. And the problem was, and I, you can say I'm that, that Coca-Cola generation or the, you know, the Pepsi generation of <laughs> the Generation X, right? Um, and a lot of leaders and managers from my generation were incredibly tough on the millennials. Like these kids, they just don't respect us and they want it now. Um, they're willing to work hard, but they think that means they get a leadership position right away with a raise. Um, and if they don't get the opportunity to work towards that position, they're just going to leave. If we don't show them a roadmap to how they can be CEO in three years, they're going to be gone because they're looking at peers starting up all these internet startups and whatnot. And they see that things can be like really quick. Um, so, you know, as a generation X sort of manager, I was working with save the children because one of our greatest concerns in mainland China at the time was that the, there was this shifting demographic, demographic of millennials just going all over the place. They, they had no compass, if you will. Um, factories and, and, and families were being really uh, upended by their movement. Um, in addition to that, you know, how they were treated by Generation X also called into a lot of questions about our humanity um, and recognizing the difference between our generational needs and wants and, and that of the next generation. Well, interestingly, an article I read recently, generation uh, or the millennials are complaining about uh, Generation Z, <laughs> you know, whereas the millennials wanted quick growth and they're willing to work for it. Generation Z isn't really necessarily um, consumed with the idea of titles and, and career growth or trajectory. They're, they're really just really more concerned about meaningful work. Um, so when we start thinking, and again, and I'm kind of going on this sort of long, you know, uh, monologue here um, about my hopes for my son, all these things are influencing my mind. All right, how can a school prepare my son for what his generation or how his generation is going to, you know, upset the Generation Zs? <laughs> um, and we can only we can only imagine what that will look like, but as long as we're, we help, help our children become aware of these differences, as long as they can kind of see how these trends have played out, hopefully they can learn from them 
And by doing so, they can sort of plot their own path, allowing for greater agency in education. And I would, I would have to kind of maybe, I'll stop with this point that how I'd like to see education change is that kids have much more control over what and how they are learning and that teachers are largely facilitators, um, which, you know, would require institutional changes of an enormous proportion. But fortunately, like where you are in the US, you can actually have schools pop up overnight ready to meet that challenge that can influence the broader educational spectrum. So um, to answer your question, I'd like to see greater agency and I'd like to see instead of teachers, facilitators. Wow. Watch what you ask for, right? <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you, Michael. This this happened um, a year and a half ago too. I'm, I'm getting all these sort of uh, reverberations from from last time we spoke. So several things from there, which which I which I want to spend just a minute or two on. One is the thing about because uh, I'm a baby boomer, so you're one generation behind me, and and you know you go back and back. <clears throat> Some. Some years ago, I was facilitating a class and it just so happened, it was total luck of the draw. Half the class was older white guys who'd been in the government for a long time. The other class, the other half was young women of color who were new to federal service. And it was just total luck of the draw. They didn't sit together. The, the old white guys on one side, the young women of color on the other side. So we talked about the generational stuff. That topic, I could feel bubbling. So, you know me, it's like, let's go. Well, all the old white guys were like, oh, young people today, they have no respect. They don't listen to us. They think they should get it immediately. And, you know, on and on and on. And it got a little a little boiling. And one of the young women raised her hand and she's going to be president of the world someday. She's, she's a remarkable, very quiet. She said, can I say something, please? Very quiet voice. And she got up and she walked over to the old white man's side and she looked at them and she said, we grew up in the world you created. Yeah. And then she went back to her seat. So that's the way I always view the generational thing is we made them, <laughs> you know, they didn't, they didn't spring forth full grown. A couple of other things you said, one was um, you were talking about with your son, meaning as part of education and I think that's really important because also what you said about the, the youngest generation is this search for meaning in our careers. Now, you know, teachers have a sense of teaching and I guess lawyers have a sense of lawyering and dentists have a sense of dentisting, but the idea that meaning may be critical if not most critical for high performance as well as for a sense of fulfillment and you know spirituality and all those things which that for school and work i think is shaping both and i don't know that like one causes the other but when you said teachers as facilitators what i thought of besides having being a lifelong teacher and i finally learned that that's how i did my best work i stopped being mm -hmm. in charge yeah. I, I just paved the way. How about the idea of managers and supervisors as facilitators, not as whip and chair holders? Yeah. I mean, this is where you and I obviously have a lot of, 
um, in common because we're both leadership facilitators. For my part, I work in schools. Uh, and so, you know, a leader, whether you're in a school or you're in the government, uh, I, would, I would argue the most important job you have is to develop leaders. Um, and, you know, that's where leaders need to be facilitators, not task managers. Um, we need to empower those that work with us to, to oversee the tasks and get, get those tasks done. And our job is to develop their capacity and capabilities in, in that regard um, and connect them to the bigger picture. So from a, you know, if, if we want to kind of drill down then and go to the school level of a teacher being a facilitator, um, then I'm going to pause here. You might want to, sorry, you might want to cut this. Um, I'm just going to, I'm going to pick up, I'm going to pick up on this thought because it just, something just clicked. Uh, so now when we drill down and, and look into a school and we want to argue for teachers to be facilitators, uh, a speaker that I've been working with um, and I've been introducing to the schools that I work with in China uh, talks about growth mindsets, the world, the work of Carol Dweck, um, but he's now coining something called learnership. And that is really the skill of learning. So it's very interesting when I think about what his name is James Anderson and what James Anderson's work's all about. It's, it's not about, you know, forcing kids to learn um, through that age old, you know, system that we've, we've always had, whether it be rote learning to just, you know, trying to evidence the learning through quizzes and tests, but it's, it's more about the skill of learning. So being able to identify those behaviors and dispositions that actually lead to learning, that's what we need to be teaching. And then the kids themselves should be able to learn on their own. Um, we shouldn't have to force the learning. Now, interestingly, another speaker that I work with in, in my region uh, named Steve Barkley, um, he's, he's from the U.S., uh, currently in Switzerland, though, and he works a lot with the U.S. public schools. And he deals a lot with instructional coaching. And Steve actually has another term that he's coined, which is all about learning production behaviors. So, you know, as an instructional coach, when I go into a classroom, I shouldn't be looking at what the outcome of the activity or the lesson is. What I need to be really looking for is a demonstration by the students of their behaviors that actually contribute towards that outcome. The outcome in and of itself, you know, for me to go into somebody's classroom and say, well, the, the kids did it or the kids didn't do it, isn't really helpful. But if I can go in and look at those behaviors that contribute towards the kids actually achieving it, and we can actually identify those behaviors, then we can actually start building them. And then that in itself, obviously, will lead to them being able to demonstrate or, or to use those skills in, in other subjects and areas of their life. So... I would say in terms of learning and it being a lifelong skill, um, you know, we reflect on how we consume information, process it, and then effectively use that um, in, in our life. That, that application of it is the demonstration of learning. And, and of course, sometimes when we use it, it doesn't work out the way we want. <laughs> sometimes it does. Uh, the question is, are we willing to go back and, and take a look at the why uh, that happened? Um, so the why becomes a very big point. So I guess, again, coming back to that very original question with my son, um, you know, I, I would love to see schools produce, you know, young inquirers. I'd like to see him 
really questioning things more. And I'd like to see them have the patience to help them work through that because even as facilitators, you and I know we don't have the answers, um, but we're, we're very good at trying to find those answers. We're very good at you know, calling upon various resources and making those resources very known to our audience um, so that they can grow that capacity uh, that you know, we're, we're there to help demonstrate for them. The, the, um, the uh, connection, one of the connections f for me about, about this, this thread of this small quilt that we're, that we're making uh, tonight for me in the morning for you, um, people who have apparent power, supervisors, managers, teachers, principals, super, you know, those, those, those people, <clears throat> excuse me. I often hear resistance, not always, but that if, if we're suggesting that they give up their authority, that they feel like they will no longer be necessary. It's like, you know, if like everybody in the rowboat figures out perfectly how to row, the guy in the back of boat with his hand on the tiller maybe out of a job, but actually those people, the people who think that they steer are just as important. They just have to shift their, how they see what they do, right? I mean, there was a time when, when teachers were their purveyors of information. And I'm old enough to remember when teachers knew everything. That's what teacher's job was. Yes, in 79 AD, Mount Vesuvius, you know, it's like, and then Herodotus came along, you know, so, which is great. I mean, we don't need that from them anymore because I can find that on my pocket computer in, as Don Imus would say, a cocaine heartbeat. But they're no less essential. And when you were talking about learnership, I think it's Peter Senge, it could be Margaret Wheatley, but anyhow, one of the two of them said, the only thing that should be on a job description is learn. That's it. It's the only thing. And especially now in this time of accelerating change, which ain't gonna happen, which ain't gonna just stop. It's not gonna go, ah, we're back to slow again. Um, we need that kind of um, curiosity throughout. And, and, and kids are naturally curious. You know that kids, kids are curious about everything. They're little possibility machines, right? They're always like, oh, ah, ooh, ah. we can, we can be that way in the workplace too. And we can be that way as teachers. And, and that just, we, we focus on a different framework for ourselves. And that gives the people whom we supervise, manage, teach, whatever, that gives them access to a different framework, which I think is a, is a much more fulfilling, useful, and productive framework. Yeah. And, you know, one, one last sort of point I want to contribute to what you just said there is there's ample research that suggests that when we frame things as learning objectives or learning goals, they're going to be far more successful and more likely to realize what we set out to achieve than if we actually identify them as performance. Um, now, don't get me wrong in the sense that performance related targets are still important. Some things do come down to numbers and therefore you need to know your arithmetic and yeah. we're always going to, we're always going to need, you know, P 
people to know how to read, right? <laughs> you know, arithmetic, um, all the R's. Um, but at the same time too, the goals or the, the development that tends to be most significant and actually can be evidenced is when things are framed as learning objectives or goals. Um, there's, there was some great research out of the University of Michigan that actually was able to demonstrate that, that uh, teams within companies um, had a far greater likelihood of achieving a goal when it was a learning goal in the sense that, hey, we're going we're gonna to do this project. And instead of saying, as a result of this project, we want to achieve um, X number of, of customers or something, uh, you know, either they reached that number or they didn't reach that number. Um, you know, it is then incumbent upon them to, to debrief and diagnose the why or the why not. Um, however, in terms of, of scaling and scaffolding the development of that team and priming it for better performance, if they were to start off with goals that were like, you know, we're, we're, we want to achieve some sort of X target with this customer base um, by finding out more about some preference, you know, if, if they start to change their mindset to one of learning, mm -hmm. um, they will develop much faster. And then what they learn, they can apply much more successfully, as opposed to just going straight after the numbers. And sometimes in schools, people are still too worried about the numbers. Oh. And that's why we're having such well-being issues during the pandemic, because we're not getting those numbers anymore. And now two years into it, people are starting to realize, look, there's just some things in our curriculum we don't really need. <laughs> and there's other ways to demonstrate the learning um, that, you know, just requires a little bit more uh, consideration. And I would, I would say to those schools and I would say to those instructors, instead of looking at what the outcome is, let's take a closer look at the learners um, and see if there's not just other ways that they're demonstrating uh, that sort of, um, knowledge and awareness and, but are, are, can we even go deeper and look at the types of behaviors amongst our students that lead to that outcome? And so therefore you have the skill of learning, learnership, you have, uh, learning production behaviors. So th these are things that, you know, I've been paying a lot of attention to over the last two years now, as I've worked with, you know, a number of professionals in the education field and, when I think about my son's education, coming back to the original question, that's really what I want. I want my son to learn how to learn. <laughs> Which is a wonderful, let me just, oh no, it's close. Um, there was some background noise. Um, yeah, yeah, learn to learn. And, and I can see it in your face as you started shifting back to, to what, you, what you want for your son which is probably not too far off, they'll maybe put differently from what most people want for their son and their daughter and maybe for themselves. So let me ask you a, a sort of last question um, because we could talk about metrics probably for the next half hour about how, how you know, because we do need to, we, knew, we do need to benchmark, you know, we do need to say, ah, that happened and this didn't happen. But we can do it qualitatively. We don't have to do it by, you got a 94.2 on your test, which may be part of what we need to leave behind. So in this year and a half, 
Um, your son has gone from two and a half to four, right? And, and, and that's beyond quantum leap. Do you have any sense of how, how your sort of operating system and your expectations about work have changed in this year and a half? And I mean, your, your son has done normal growth and development, you know, is all his language skills and motor skills and all that kind of stuff. But have you seen anything about his development that, that, that has to do with COVID lockdown stuff that you think might be cool? So I think in, in many ways, when I think about our family in particular and how fortunate we are, and, and my wife and I are, are very good at voicing what we observe and how we feel. Um, we don't really hold back from our children. Um, and, and especially in our own conversations, if, if somebody has died in the family, we're, we're, we're quite upfront about it. We don't try to hide it. Um, if somebody is sick or we feel somebody is underprivileged, we call attention to it. So if anything, my children, and I have an older daughter as well, who's eight, um, turning nine in, in two weeks. Uh, but when I think about how they've developed during the pandemic and back to this idea of humanity, um, they've definitely become more humane because so much more inequity and has been drawn to their attention. The, the sadness of their grandparents is very apparent to them. So they're very sensitive to the fact that they they themselves can't be with people that love them and want to see them. Um, so they're, they're much more sensitive to the feelings and thoughts of others. Um, that said, we're also very fortunate that we've been able to provide a very normal life for them here in Hong Kong, despite uh, not being able to travel much because of quarantine and everything. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Hong Kong has kept schools open. And, you know, we take our kids out a lot for hikes, um, play rugby, football. Um, they've enjoyed quite a few activities. And even now during lockdown, I come home early to make sure we can still play rugby, for instance, um, that on the weekends, we're going to go do a hike, we're going to go to a park. Um, so it's ensuring of keeping them active. There are some elements of their life, I think they still haven't really processed <laughs> yet. Yeah. But that that sort of human element of them, how that's developed during the pandemic is largely because we haven't held back in terms of talking about how other family members or friends or people in our community um, might have been affected by all this. How about in your work? For me personally? Yeah. So for me personally, you know, it, again, I'm, this medium, you know, even through which we've met, uh, we've, we've never met each other in person. Um, we were connected through LinkedIn and yet within minutes, you and I personally connected at a level where we're talking about our families, our, our, our personal hobbies. Um, we've opened ourselves up more in, in many respects to connecting with people that we never would have met. Um, and that, and that is an incredibly important element of our own growth and my growth personally because you know, you're one of, of many people that I've just opened myself up to, to say, 
I just, I just need to get to know people better. I need to get to know their experiences better. And as I have, I've learned about their COVID stories, the, the deaths, you know, that have, have hit them, I, you know, only because we might've started off uh, meeting in an instance like this, but then when we followed up, it's like, Hey, something's different. What's, what's going on. And, and there we are opening up to each other, still virtual friends and, and, you know, but are we, are we, all, are we really strangers anymore? Probably not. Yeah. Um, and so that sort of a willingness, that sort of, we call it, uh, you know, these sort of authentic leaders that make themselves vulnerable. I think in many ways, many of us have been willing to make ourselves more vulnerable to others. And that is, I think, a positive growth um, outcome from all of this. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, thank you very much, man. Yeah. Yeah. Always. <laughs> well, this is, I suspect this is not the, uh, the last conversation we'll ever have. Um, and I will, as soon as I, I do whatever magic I can do with this, I will, I will let you know how to access it. Um, and it'll be in, in the book, which will be great. Well, you know, I, I look forward to the day of getting to Maryland. I have a really good friend in Maryland. Um, and, uh, but I, I generally, I love that part of the East coast. Anyways, I look forward to getting there for a clam bake and uh, some crabs with you. <laughs> some Maryland blue crabs. <laughs> and I'll take you for a sale. Yeah. Good. That would be fun. And then I can listen to you actually riff on the guitar and that would be a, that would be a treat. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up, man. You just cannot make it up. You look good. You look like you're healthy. You look like you're, you know, you're having, you're having a rationally and happy good time. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that. And again, like I said, it's because people like yourself, you know, it's just, we're, we're connecting with, with, uh, with like minds that bring out the best in us. And these types of conversations, even though it was completely ad hoc, unprepared, like I said, it's, it's probably the most natural and, and real part of who we are. Right. Yeah. So the, the fact that it can be delivered in one go is pretty, pretty amazing. It just shows how many conversations we, we have been having. Right. <laughs> you know, as soon as you said that, I thought the same thing it was like, well, why didn't we do this before? <laughs> it didn't occur to us, I guess. Yeah. So hopefully this becomes sort of a staple where we continue to meet people and, and have these types of conversations because they really, they do, they do contribute to the growth. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, part of what has kept me closer to sane during this pandemic is doing this podcast. It's, it's this sense. It's, it, it, it's, it's like, you know, when you, when you, when you go away to college and all of a sudden, you go to like a freshman mixer or something and all of a sudden you have all these new friends, which you'll have for the rest of your life. And it happens in a couple of hours and then you stop doing that for some reason, but we're doing so, it. Yeah. We're doing it. Well, I look forward to thinking about the progress. Um, I have a, I have a call in two minutes that I have to jump That's on. Right. I have to go um, to, but keep me up to date and uh, let me know if there's any other ways that I can contribute at a minimum. I would say in a few months, we should just catch up anyways. Yeah. You, you get no argument from me. Great. Well, have a good one, Mac. And uh, thank you again for this opportunity to be a part of your project. It's a, it's, a, it's a real pleasure and honor. My pleasure, my friend. Take good care, right? Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Right. Bye.